You're listening to Titan Nature's Yellowstone, a podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Sponsored by Think Tank Photo. Think Tank Photo designs camera carrying solutions for working professionals. Welcome to another episode of Titan Nature's Yellowstone. Today, I have Chris Jeremiah with me, and he is Yellowstone's bison biologist. Hey, welcome, and thanks for being here, Chris. I'll, I'll go ahead, and Chris, I'll have you kind of give your, introduce yourself. Maybe tell us, you know, how you chose bison, I guess, and uh, you know, maybe a little bit about your work with the Park Service. Sure. My name is Chris Jeremiah. I'm the Park's bison biologist, and uh, been here for 20 years, just over 20 years. I came here in 2001 and I've worked with bison almost since day one. And I think really bison chose me rather than uh, me choosing bison. And I was coming as a, uh, just a field technician to uh, I believe at the time they were looking for somebody who could uh, ski in the wintertime, snow camp. You know, my job was going to be to track bison across the Hayden Valley and the, the Firehole Valley in the wintertime, collecting fecal samples to look at animal health, and pregnancy. And they, they needed somebody who wanted to work in the winter and was comfortable doing that. Over the years, I, uh, the issue really chose me. I didn't know anything about bison before I came to the park. I didn't know anything about the conflict. I didn't know about uh, the status of bison conservation in North America and just this this issue where science hits society where conservation really you know we have not yet hit the ceiling we're trying to define how we conserve bison in modern society it was just incredibly interesting and I wanted to uh to help kind of steer the future for bison so I've gone on and I've been here for 20 years I've become was the project biologist for several years. And when the previous leader uh, retired in 2018, I became the leader of the program. That's great. That's a great story to be able to get in something and work something, you know, with a species so long for 20 years. That's, that's amazing. You know, one of the first questions I, I have that I was thinking about is the question that I often get asked as a guide, is it a bison or a buffalo? How do you answer <laughs> that? No, I think um, one way I answer that is, is it a pronghorn or is it, (laughs) you know, I refer to them as pronghorn, but if I was in Montana hunting pronghorn, it would be antelope season. So they're just different names usually used to refer to the same thing. So bison is really the scientific name. You know, the genus is bison. Uh, The species is also bison. And um, buffalo is more so a common name, commonly used by uh, people in the livestock industry, by, uh, by uh, Native Americans, and myself. I, I use the terms interchangeably. Uh, if you were being precisely scientifically correct, you know, buffalo is a slightly different species that lives in Africa, you know, not here in North America. Thank you. That's, that's about the way. I answer that as well. It's no, it's a historic name. Almost the Buffalo is, you know, it's been around for a while. 
when people are coming to Yellowstone, often we find bison or buffalo right along the roadways. So, and, and I think a lot of people are excited. We get traffic jams. Um, when people approach a situation like that, is there, you know, what's the best way? Do you have an answer for you know, how to get around the bison? Do they be patient? Do they get off the road? How do you deal with a, a bison in the middle of the road? I remember when I was first coming to the park again, I didn't, I didn't know what I was getting into, but the park was closed. I was coming up through the south entrance of the park. Uh, you know, I opened the gate because the park was closed yet. And I came through within the first five minutes, there's this bison standing in the middle of the road. And my, the thought that went through my head was I'm never going to see something like this again. <laughs> this has got to be a a lifetime opportunity because the park hasn't opened yet. And, you know, in reality, you, know, you will see that every day you drive in Yellowstone, we have large numbers of bison, you know, on the roads, you know, the roads are right next to the rivers in many places. They're part of the natural migration routes of the animals. They're also the roads cut through the valleys that the bison use as their main feeding areas. So, you know, you will, the roads are, are just a part of the landscape that bison use. And uh, I would say that always remember to treat bison like wildlife. I slow down. I try and give them space. If, you know, you're, if bison are crossing the road, I let them cross the road. And when there's a natural gap, I would con continue driving. You know, I would, if I wanted to watch those animals, I would pull off more than 25 yards away and just watch them ideally pulling off in a pullout. and if you're if you're traveling with bison on the road which does happen when they're when they're moving usually what i try and do is when the animals move to the side of the road or on the other side of the road i try and drive around the group slowly now you don't try and get right behind the group and run them down the road nor do you necessarily sit behind the group for, you know, miles and miles and miles of roadway. You know, we're trying to share the road with them. Thank you. That's great. So you mentioned going through the park and you can find them along the roads kind of everywhere. Do you, what's the population of bison in Yellowstone? We count the population in midsummer. We do that because bison are calving in late spring, peak calvings in May. Most of the calves are on the ground by the 30th of May. We then, you know, give a slight period where there's some, you know, not all the, not all the calves that hit the ground make it. Some will be, you know, eaten by predators. Others will drown in rivers or die of, you know, neonate diseases. So we use this period of midsummer to count the population. So last summer we were about 4,800 animals. You know, I'm suspecting that we'll be around 5,200 animals this upcoming summer, the summer of 2021. Oh, I think I heard from you once um, the survival rate of a bison calf, and it seems like it's pretty high. Do you know that number? You know, it is pretty high. We think that about at least 80% of calves live those that first month or two of life when they're most vulnerable to disease, predators, and the environment. And then from there, we think, you know, so about 80% make that first two months. And then we think about another 80% or higher make the rest of that first year. So that's really a very high survival rate for calves. That's 
probably somewhere between 64 and 70 percent is very high that's that is incredible so you know i i've been out in the park and seen the the bison calves already and you know right now you have you know it's i guess you would call it a, a nursing herd that there's the bison calves around and it seems like a lot of times you have kind of the bachelors separate from that now how's this hierarchy of the bison you know you get a herd of bison and people always ask me well there's a herd who's who's in charge of that herd you know where's where's the big guys and how does the um the family grouping of a bison work that is a question i don't i can't answer as well okay to but i can i can give you some thoughts and the reason why i can't answer it as well as i'd like to is it's really hard when you have 5000 animals you know these animals travel each individual travels about 1000 miles each year their migrations are about 70 miles from point a to point you know from the furthest point to the other furthest point so when you put bison on that landscape and intermixing it's really hard to see what how a group spends their entire year it's kind of drawing from research done in other places along with what we've seen from our radio callers here i think the first thing to think is that bison groups are very dynamic we think that there's roughly two herds in the park, a northern herd, which basically lives along the Lamar and the Yellowstone River. And then we've got the lower Yellowstone River. And then we've got the central herd that lives more in the Firehole Basin, the Madison River, and then moves over to Hayden Valley. And then the northern herd is probably somewhere between three and 4,000 animals. The central herd is somewhere between one in 2,000 animals. Within each herd now, you get lots of groups of bison, the whole herds not together on any given day. In the middle of the summer, they might all be in you know, one river valley. All those three to 4,000 animals might be really close to each other where you can almost connect the dots from one, you know, between all of those animals. In the wintertime, that's far from the case. So let's try and break down the year a little. In the summer, the males come and join the females. The adult bulls come in, and that you know you just have these groups of of moms, their calves, their bulls, and they're very dynamic. You know, you could have a group of two hundred animals in one spot and a group of two hundred animals right next to it. Those two groups could merge together, and then as they leave, they could still be two groups of two hundred animals but they're likely a mixture of the original two groups. So they're very dynamic. And that's happening on an hourly, daily basis in the middle of the summer. Now, as you move towards winter, things start breaking up a bit. You know, that same process of groups, you know, fusing together and fizzing, breaking apart is happening. But groups may be apart for days, weeks, because bison are fracturing into small areas because there's a lot of snow, there's not as much food around. So the long and short is I think that bison exist in groups of about two to four animals. It's a mom, it's her calf, it's her previous year's calf, maybe even one before that. So when you see a group of 200 animals, it's 
how many groups, 25 groups, you know, 50 groups of four. And, you know, all of those four, you know, kind of have their leader cow and then with their subdominant subordinate animals. So in the wintertime, you know, there might only be a couple of dominant animals in a group. And then every time when a group, you know, comes together and, and breaks apart, you know, those leaders are saying, do I, am I happy here or do I want to go with that other group that's moving? Because bison like to be together. So it's almost like when I look at a bison group, I see all of these little groups of four and they're just constantly changing, mixing it up and being very dynamic. Thanks for that. That's, that's some great insight for me to kind of give it a better idea or a different idea of, of how these bison group like that. Thank you. You know, going off of that. So, you know, things change a little bit in the, the fall time. Well, I guess late summer into August where bison go into the rut. Now, you know, I think a lot more people are familiar with like elk, you know, a bull elk might have a harem of 10, 20, 30 females. How about a, a bull bison? You know, because you see the whole herd, it seems like it's mixed together, chasing and running. What are the dynamics there? How many, I guess, bison, a bull bison, would a, a cow, uh, cows would a bull bison cover? That's, that's another hard question. Okay. That can only be a- answered genetically, like looking at how related is each individual and how much does each bull contribute to reproduction. But the sex ratio of the park is actually slightly biased towards males. So there's, it's almost one-to-one, but there's slightly more males than females in the entire population, which is very unlike most elk populations. What we see is that almost a pairing, a one-to-one pairing between bulls and cows in the peak of the rut. So when you have a group of, say, 100 animals or 20 animals, it's not one bull with 20 cows. It's 20 bulls with 20 cows. But it's even more dynamic than that, because you'll see one of those cows comes into, into estrus, into heat. She's ready to, um, you know, she's ready to be bred. Uh, you will see, you know, perhaps four or five or six, sometimes even eight males start trying to compete for that single cow. So I would say there's a lot of, um, it's definitely not one male to 20 females. It's much more of a balanced um, breeding strategy, a one-to-one strategy. Okay. But let's, let's say that, uh, a group comes to, to Yellowstone for the first time and they come up and they're in Lamar or Hayden or, you know, along the Gibbon somewhere and they see a herd of bison. This is the first time and they're looking at them. What would you say they should look for in that bison? I mean, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, there's bison. And it's like, well, we're going to relate it to cows because that's the closest that some of us are familiar with. I mean, should they look at it as a herd of cows? What should they, does that make sense? What kind of behavior, what kind of things would be, should they notice in that herd? Now, the first thing, which is that I think the easiest thing to help somebody notice is, you know, try and figure out which calves and cows are, you know, pairs. You know, where is there a mom and where is there a baby? Because bison have a single calf each year almost all bison calf every year, something like 70%. And you, you will notice that through their communications because sometimes there'll be a cow and all of the four babies will be together around this one cow. But that doesn't mean that that one cow has four babies. It's just, you know, she's kind of watching them. But then you'll see another cow on the other side of the group kind of give a call, kind of the, you know, a deep guttural call. 
you'll see one of the calves and kind of give this high pitched call. And then the cow may do it again. If she does it multiple times, she's calling that calf over. Eventually see a calf run over to the cow. So the first thing I like to try and do is to get people to try and see, well, which cows are tied to which calves. And then I, then I usually focus on the cows and say, well, which ones are the more dominant animals? If we're bison are living in groups of about four, you know, I've probably got, you know, a great grandma cow, a grandma cow and a mama cow, and then some babies tied in there. And they will have dominance and submissive behaviors. And I'm trying to watch, you know, how, how is that structuring? You know, you may see cows wallow. That's a dominance behavior, which is, you know, to get down, roll on their back. You may see cows butt heads to each other. It's another dominance, even a play behavior to kind of identify this pecking order. You'll see cows will, um, will horn, just lightly horn each other to, you know, a dominant animal will push off another animal. And, you know, through these interactions, you know, they're forming that, that society, that dominant society. Thank you. That's, that's great. That's, those are new insights for me too, as far as the behavior and just the cows, you know, I'm always looking for some of the behavior in the males. And I think it's a lot easier to tell like during the rut, you know, males or tails are up or um, the rolling and things with that. So that's, that's good insight for the cows. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So for the bulls, you know, and that's important, you know, bison live in a, a dominance culture which means they stand their ground and they exert a dominant behavior, you know, an aggressive, not aggressive, a dominant behavior. So it may start with, you know, for two males, just uh, staring at each other and kind of giving that deep guttural call, that that deep guttural call. That, that male is essentially challenging another male saying, you know, I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. And if the other male says, well, I accept your challenge, you know, he'll do the same thing. You know, so then, but, you know, the, the bigger of the two animal may start bobbing his head up and down. That's kind of a, you know, a next dominance behavior or swinging it side to side. And if that other animal will either walk away at that point or do the same thing, you know, kind of a step up from there is that animal may start pawing the ground, maybe even actually roll down and wallow. And again, he's challenging the other male. The other male accepts that challenge. This will continue. He'll do the same thing. You know, getting getting to the point where you know they'll basically run and butt heads. And you know that that intent is a you know it's a fight to the death interaction. You know, animals will gore each other. They'll they'll flip them over, flip each other over. So bison have this this you know this this flexing their muscles dominance. Um, these dominance interactions to kind of identify who's the biggest bull in the group. Great. Um, you know, thinking about that, um, another question that I often get, now talking about behavior is, you know, why are all these trees rubbed along the roads? And I believe that's, you know, all from the bison. I've heard different things from people thinking, like a couple of years ago, I heard somebody say, talk about porcupines. Like, no, it's not porcupines or bears or elk, but a lot of it's from bison. Um, why are they rubbing up against the the trees? You know, I think some of it is to um, to mark their trails to some extent. If you when you're following a bison migration route, you can you can see their mark across. You know, as they're moving from a meadow through an area of forest to another meadow, you can you can see the tra- the trail that they travel because all of the trees are rubbed along the way. 
know, they're also rubbing off their, their coats. You know, they're rubbing the, the top of their head. They're rubbing their sides. They're rubbing their backs. You know, they're pulling off their coats. They're pulling insects out of their hair. And, you know, people talk about bison as this ecosystem engineer. So they actually are expanding the meadows very gradually over time by rubbing out trees, you know, killing trees by that way if they girdle them. That, that, that takes me as far as engineers or I don't know if that's the right time for term for this, but you co-wrote a paper talking about the migrating bison engineering the green wave and you talk a little bit about the green wave and the bison and how what what that process is what the green wave is and i think you use the term surfing the green wave sure so um you know a lot of ungulates you know actually finding all kinds of species you know waterfowl birds a variety of mammals you know they were learning that animals that migrate, all kinds of animals that migrate, there's a reason for the timing that they move to different places. And in the springtime, that timing has a lot to do with getting the best food at the right time. So for an herbivore, as a plant starts to grow, it is really high in protein and very low in digestible matter, indigestible matter, like fiber. And as that plant matures and gets older, kind of switches. It becomes lower in protein and really high in fiber. And for a migrating animal, you want to be right at that midpoint when it's got a lot of protein and just a little bit of fiber because you're getting the, you know, kind of the most energy for every bite when you're eating plants in that stage. And that happens to be when, when plants are about the height of your normal lawn if you were cutting it with a lawnmower so you know when the grass is pretty short so in areas like yellowstone winter it's white everywhere and then as in the lowest elevations they start to green up that wave of green kind of moves up the river valleys to the mountaintops you know that that progression of greening up we call the green wave and we're learning that all kinds of animals time their migrations with that green wave we tested that recently with bison, and we find that they start their spring migrations marching right in tune with that green wave. But as they get about two-thirds of the way along their migration route, they suddenly stop, and they let the green wave go by. They don't continue following it to their highest elevation areas. When we checked, uh, we collected fecal samples from the animals, and when they let that green wave go by, we found that it still seemed like they were eating the best possible foods, like they were still surfing the green wave. So we wound up putting up a bunch of vegetation exclosures to try and figure out what was going on. And by doing so, we realized that the animals were, the bison were able to graze areas, you know, aggregate into these big groups and graze these areas so intensely that they keep kind of set, hitting reset on spring. When the grass starts to get tall, they graze it all down, they stimulate it to regrow. So they're almost creating their own springtime by grazing intensely and then stimulating the grasses to regrow. One other thing that we found is we looked at how this park greened up over the last two decades. And we found that as, as more bison started to use areas more intensely, as the grazing in areas became more intense, it 
made spring happen earlier. So the green wave started sooner. It, things greened up faster. They stayed green longer. And at the end of the day, bison were shaping the whole way that this landscape was turning from brown to green to gold in midsummer, which to me was, that's, that's pretty incredible. Because you think back to when bison roamed North America, 30 to 60 million animals moving not only along elevation gradients like here in Yellowstone, but moving from southern to northern latitudes across the Great Plains. And they would have been shaping the whole way that spring happened. And that, that to me is a you know, it's pretty, you know, pretty that is, that's, that's incredible um, to hear it that way. Uh, is, you know, you think of, I think people often think of, you know, use the example of beavers changing the landscape, you know, how well they do that. Or we think about uh, Yellowstone's a great example of a, you know, maybe a trophic cascade with the wolves. And it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, that same thing is happening with bison. Maybe it's not as visible or something that is noticed as much, but bison are changing the landscape the same way. And without the bison here, that landscape would change a lot. Um, and, and I guess the, the other thing is, I imagine that do bison kind of prepare that way and help the other ungulates coming through, whether it's elk or pronghorn or the other ones that are using that vegetation? That's what we're just trying to figure out now is like, are these bison grazing lawns and how they're shaping how plants grow and how nutrients cycle through the system? Is that affecting the timing of the movements of some of the other ungulates? We're also looking into like, does it affect the diversity of the species that live there? You know, to me, it makes a lot of sense that the, the soil microbes, the insects, the songbirds, the small mammals that are using areas that are shaped by bison are totally different species than the ones that are using areas that are, that are not influenced by bison. Because as you drive around the park, you will see it in the summertime. There's places where there are bison and there's places you can't tell there's a bison in this park. So... Um, you're absolutely right. You know, it's taken us a hundred years, but now we've 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 restored predator populations, and we finally have restored restored herbivore populations with the recovery of the bison, really over the last two decades. So finally, now we've got a a Yellowstone that's kind of this this push and pull between your top herbivore, a bison, and your top predators, grizzly bears and wolves, kind of shaping you know how this ecosystem works so and I, it's something that today probably stay away from but you know there's with bison there's always a little bit of controversy which i don't want to get into too many of the details but if i understand right one of the the things that we're worried about is maybe being having too many bison on the landscape and overgrazing the area and so the park amongst other things is where you're trying to relocate some animals or um, has transferred to animals to other areas. How are those transfers going? And are we, are you, is that being successful? Yeah, so that's a, this is, a, this is like trying to eat an elephant one bite. <laughs> I understand that. So, I mean, we don't have to get too far into it, but I mean, I think that's incredible that, you know, we have the animals here and that we are trying to, take them, I guess you guys, you know, are trying to take them other places to build this, this natural population. 
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, maybe if somebody's coming to the park and like me, when I first got here, didn't understand the, the full story of bison, I'll try and just take everybody through it. Just want, you know, just step by step. Really, there are very few places in North America where we're trying to fully have bison as a component of an ecosystem where they're allowed to migrate, roam across large landscapes, have all of the positive effects on landscapes that we were just talking about. You know, bison don't have, because that's not really happening anywhere else in North America, bison don't have a lot of tolerance, acceptance for them outside of protected areas like national parks, fish and wildlife service refuges. So when bison migrate out of the park, it has created quite a bit of conflict with the adjoining states. So we've, we've worked for decades trying to manage that conflict. So one way is controlling the bison population size. So when bison migrate outside of the park, they may be hunted by state hunters, they may be hunted by Native Americans. Some animals are rounded up and sent to slaughter. And the program you're talking about is a, is a new alternative, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. It's taking animals that have migrated out of the park and would go to slaughter in order to help control numbers. But as an alternative, we're sending them to Native American tribes to try and restore lost cultures, restore lost ways of life, and restore Yellowstone bison you know, to, to areas across North America, places where they once roamed. It's complicated because Yellowstone bison have a disease called brucellosis. It's heavily regulated in livestock. So in order to transfer them live elsewhere, animals need to go through a multi-year quarantine for the disease brucellosis to confirm that they don't have the disease before they can be transferred to tribes. So this program is just underway since 2018. To date, we've transferred about 154 Yellowstone bison back to Native American tribes. Just in this last year, the movement of 55 animals, you know, among uh, 16 tribes in nine states was the largest transfer of Yellowstone bison in history. So this program is in, in its infant stage. We're hoping to get to the point where we can bring in you know, 100 to 200 animals into the program every winter and move 100 to 200 animals to tribal areas every year and hopefully the next few years. That's awesome. And what a great success story that would be. As I, I often talk about populations of bison to people. And tell me if my numbers are wrong, because I know they might be outdated a little bit, but you know, at one time I tell people there was 30 to 60 million of bison across the country, somewhere in there. And that currently there's about 500,000 bison, um, only about 20,000 that are wild, and only about 8,000 have the pure genetics of the original bison. Does that sound about right? No, that is, that's very close okay. to right. You know, only about 8,000 are you know, allowed to be treated like wildlife, can, you know, can move, can roam, have, you know, generally pure genetics. So when you think about it, you know, moving hundreds of animals just like those back to, to tribes, to public lands, it really, it really would help ensure the, 
the preservation, the conservation of the species. You know, once upon a time, in the, you know, around 1900, there were only about two to 400 free-ranging bison left in North America, down from what you said, 30 to 60 million. Uh, here in the park, it was about 21. And we brought 21 more into the Lamar Valley. We built fences. We, you know, we, we restored bison to this park. You know, now, I, I mean, I think it's a massive success story. Yeah. We're trying to move those fences out past the boundary of the park to now restore bison in the same way to the rest of this continent. And I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm here. Yeah. You know, I think, I think sometimes we forget that, you know, you hear a lot of, you know, grizzly bears and wolves are incredible conservation success story, but really you, you look at bison and especially for the time frame, And I think the, the looking ahead to, to saving them back at that time when we were still killing other animals was, is incredible. And, you know, I think it's probably has a way to, to go yet, but uh, I think it's one of the great converse, converse, conservation stories that sometimes we forget about is the bison. So just last Friday, I was out at Slough Creek in the northern area of the park. I had my scope on um, the Junction Butte Den and was watching wolves. And, you know, I, if you kind of in the forefront of that. So, you know, I was looking, you know, miles and miles away through the scope. You know, if I just looked with my regular eye right in front of me was a herd of bison and a grizzly bear. And I just thought for a second, it's like, you know what? I'm just looking at three species that were brought to the brink and almost gone. And here they are acting just the way they used to. We've brought them back. And there's very few places, particularly when it comes to bison, we've done that outside of Yellowstone. So we do have a long way to go. Yeah, that's that is incredible. So kind of I, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but real quick, you know, I think something that's very important that we see in the news all the time that's kind of neglected is the safety around the bison. Like people forget these are wild animals, um, you know, how fast they can run, how high they can jump. You know, I try to tell people, think of a bull rider in a rodeo getting on the back of a bull and letting it out. And that's how a bison can move. You know, people don't realize that. So what are some safety tips that you would give people is, you know, whether they're on the trail or getting out of their car? And they, is, I think one of the big things is people are so excited that they kind of forget it's a wild animal. What are some great safety tips as you're, as you're around bison? Great point. You know, bison can jump over a six to eight foot tall fence standing still. Bison can can run faster than a horse. They can also be incredibly docile in grazing in a meadow. And you forget those things. You know, to be safe around bison, you need to treat them like wildlife. You need to give them space. You need to, at minimum, watch them from 25 yards away. You need to use a lens, use your zoom when you can. When you're, when you're out watching bison, you know, they very well may approach you. If that happens, just take a step back, take two steps back, you know, move away from them when animals come, come towards you. You know, giving them, giving them that space is very important. You know, you may be in a situation, you know, sit, you know, where there's a lot of people around and you, you can't do that. Or suddenly you find yourself 
close to an animal, then you have to, to, to be ready to react. You know, an animal may, may bellow, that, that, that deep sound. They may paw the ground or shake that head. That means you're too close and you need to get away right now. I would turn and run away from them, you know, get away from them. Because, you know, as I said with that earlier, we had this description of what are dominance behaviors by, by, by bison, by bull bison, by male bison. You know, they go through this, this almost this dance of dominance behaviors where first it's bellow, second it's bob your head, third it's paw the ground, fourth it's, you know, um, wallow, fifth it's charge. So if you're standing your ground, you know, just watching them when the bison is doing all of that, that bison is challenging you, saying back away, you're too close. So if you never back away, you, you could very well get charged if all of those things happen. So be ready to react, give bison room, and you'll be able to, uh, to observe something you can't see anywhere else. Yeah, that's awesome. And actually, I have one more question, probably one of the biggest questions I get. And I always kind of make up an answer. I don't know if I make it up or just, you know, it's an educated guess. So bison's fur is always thickest around the front of their body. And my explanation is, well, it's the core of the body. It's probably the most important. It needs to be protected. Is that on point? Why is there so much fur around the front of their body and so little behind them? And so in the summertime, you definitely see that. In the winter, that's true too. And I think some of it is exactly what she said. Some of it is to keep them warm. So in the wintertime, these animals are out when it's 40 below zero or even colder. In a, in a bison, they have multiple stomachs because of the type, you know, they're ruminant. They have multiple stomachs. And there are these bacteria digesting all of the grasses that they eat. And in the process of digesting those grasses, they release a ton amount of heat. So a bison essentially is heated by their digestion from within. And then they have this intense coat and all of this fur to keep that heat inside, to not let it get out. So you're exactly right. You need to have a lot of fur for that reason. It also cools, keeps them cool in the summer okay. by not letting the sun's heat hit them. And I'd say the other reason they have all of that fur up front is it's... Um, to support their dominant society. You know, it gives them that stately look when they, they face each other and challenge each other like a lion's mane. You know, it's a way to say, I am the biggest, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest person on this playground. Well, Chris, I want to say thank you for your time. And uh, for all those listening, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tied to Nature's Yellowstone. Thanks for listening to Tied to Nature's Yellowstone, the podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Keep up to date with Tied to Nature and Think Tank Photo on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.